Welcome back. If you went somewhere this week, welcome just normal. If you didn't, um, thank you all for being here with us today. My name is Justin Crow. I'm one of the pastors here at Mission Church, and uh, I am excited to be able to preach God's Word today. Now, I love preaching, and I, really, I mean that. I really do. I love the preparation of preaching. I love the wrestling that takes place every time I do it, because there's always something within the confines of my own heart that needs to be fleshed out, or something that I didn't know that changes my thinking, or, or whatever. I, I love all of the aspects of these types of things, but today's a tough topic. There's no doubt about it. There's no way of getting around it. I might as well just put that out there at the very beginning, and we can move past it. However, I don't believe that God was unaware that 2021 was coming. I don't believe God was unaware that 2021 would be a weird time, to say the least, or that cancel culture would be a thing, or you can't say certain things, or you can't bring up certain topics, or you can't look at certain things this way. God did not leave these words in here unknowingly how it may or may not speak into our lives even today, and that is why I am very confident that God has a good word for us here today. The thing is, though, is I am still a sinner, I am still a fallible man, so I will be sticking a little closer to my page today than maybe I usually would, simply because I do not want to misstep or misspeak. Okay, so with that though, I, 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 normally you don't say these things, okay? Public speaker people would tell you, like, don't say these things to your audience before you get going, okay? The anxiety that I feel every week when I preach, the angst, I guess is a better word, I feel that every, every time I preach because, again, I'm not talking about sports here. I'm not talking about toothpaste. I'm talking about God's Word. I want to speak well of God's Word. But the anxiety and the angst that every pastor probably feels, if they're good ones, because that means that the second part is true, is that we're like 20, 30 hours into looking into this. We've rolled it over in our minds over and over and over again, and then here y'all show up, and we're like, all right, here's slavery. We're going to talk about it for 45 minutes, and here's everything I learned in 30 hours. It's kind of like when you come up with a good idea, plan for business or something, and you think it's a great idea, but you've had weeks to prepare your mind for this is the change we're about to make, and then you go tell somebody, and they're less than excited about it. They're like, I don't know if that's going to work. They haven't had the, the week to roll around and think maybe it will work, so they're not as excited as you are. That's maybe where we're at today. I have to try to condense this, but I, with all of that being said, if you do not feel your affections stirred for Jesus this morning, then it is me that has done a bad job. It is not God's Word. If you do not feel more pulled towards Jesus after we are done here this morning, again, I pray you would forgive me, not look badly on God's Word and what we are looking at today. So with all of that being said, if you would take your Bibles out and turn, or your uh, listening guides that we hand out, if you don't have one of those, we've got plenty, I think, go grab one. won't bother me if you even go grab one now, or a Bible that's close by, but Exodus 21 is where we will be. Now we're going to read, not every verse, there, there is some at the end we will not read here at the moment, but almost every verse of it, so I want you to be engaged and, and listening and reading along also, so you make sure I read it correctly and I'm not making things up. There's a lot to get to this morning, but let's start by reading God's Word. Exodus 21. 
Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then this master shall bring him to God. He shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And he does not do these, if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which you may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be, not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept him in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death." If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Just all of that. That's what we're going to preach today. It's no big deal, right? We'll get to it in 10 minutes, and we'll be done. All right. There's lots here. I want to start, though, by pointing something out from verses 23 through 34, if you were keeping track of the numbers that we put in there. There's a term here that you have heard before. I guarantee it in your life. I don't see anyone in here except maybe Miss Sawyer in the back that is young enough not to have heard this term, eye for an eye. We've heard it over and over in our lives. We've heard this person say it or this person say it. We've, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. 
And here's the thing. Most of us have probably heard this term or used this term in justification for gaining revenge on someone. I know a man once that held a grudge for eight years. I'm not making the story up. This is the shortened version. Please come ask me for the longer one later. It's hilarious. But literally saw a man eight years later, beat him up. My dad said, what are you doing? And he said, I told that dude the next time I saw him, I was going to beat him up. And this is the first time I saw him. And I'm going to do it. Eye for an eye, baby. That's what he was, he, I don't know if he used the term eye for an eye, but that's what he was doing. That guy wronged me eight years ago. And this is the first time I've seen him since. We do this too, though. Well, they deserve it, or I can do this, or I can do that. I hope right here that you can see that I for an I was never meant as vengeance, or you able to even the scales, or get revenge on someone who has wronged you, but it is to protect the powerless from the rights of the powerful. Because what do you see here? You remember the Israelites have just come out of slavery to the Egyptians not long ago. They had no rights they had no recourse for wrong. They had nothing they could do. There was no file a complaint with the higher authorities. There was no suggestion box. There was no, well, this guy whipped me too hard today, so I'm not working tomorrow. None of that. There was nothing they could do. They were powerless to do anything. So when God separates his people from all other people groups, he is going to make them distinct in many ways. He's going to make them different. And early on, He's setting up some ground rules of how they will function as a society, and this is one of those. When a powerful person oppresses a powerless person, the poor man still has rights because he is still an image bearer of God. Therefore, he has value. Therefore, he has dignity. And the eye for an eye was to protect the person so the powerful man couldn't go, who cares? Yeah, I knocked his eye out. What does that matter? I'm, I'm powerful. I've got money. I've got this. No, no, God is saying, no, no, no. He's just as valuable as you are, so therefore, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, wound for wound. There's multiple things. We never hear that, right? Well, stripe for stripe, I'm going to get him. It's always eye for an eye for some reason. But I hope you see the difference there, and it's actually God maintaining the dignity of his image bearers, not an invocation for us to get vengeance. God is also going to make his people distinct in other ways but always in the interest of valuing the dignity of human beings because they are human beings. God is going to maintain that, and one way is also not being dishonest, not being too greedy. We saw this in Commands 8 and 9. We see this, they're not going to fail to pay restitution if an ox kills someone, or if an ox gets out and does damage to property. There's We'll see this in, in other chapters as we go forward. There are lots of laws of restitution. If you owe someone, you pay this way. If you owe someone this because of this thing, you pay them this way. We're not going to get into that today. But restitution is a big deal to God. Making the, the ledgers balanced are, is a big deal to God. This goes back to commandments 8 and 9. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not be dishonest. Do not be marked by dishonesty. My people will be known this way. My people will not be greedy in the way they lie, cheat, and steal, or in the discontentment they have feelings towards other people and what they have versus what they don't have. We've just gone over these things. And this idea here goes back to God wanting us to pay our debts. God wanting us to make things right. To not be greedy and, well, I can get away with this. I can't be forced to pay or they don't know where I live or whatever. It's 
making things right. And this idea did not just come because they just left Egypt. It was established in the garden when God said, Adam, if you eat of this tree, there's payment for that. Don't eat of this. But if you do, there's payment. It will be made right. It will be made balanced. And you will surely die. And before you go, well, that was the old, old the ways of doing things, the Old Testament. Romans, the wages of sin is what? Death. There is payment to be made. God's chosen people in the Old Testament following the law and Jesus' followers in the New Testament following after him and following after under grace shall be known as debt payers. We are to be distinct and set out from the world. God's economy will always be marked by a balanced budget and his followers should mirror that the best they possibly can in life. And I know some of you are thinking, are you just avoiding this slavery topic by talking about debts and payments? No, I am not. But that is the context in which we are stepping. That is the context in which we are going to now talk about slaves and slavery. Because when you say the word slave, when you say the word slavery, it conjures up images. Everyone here is thinking them right now. I just said the words. Everyone here has something that they go back to that they think of that is slavery in their mind. Most of these images are American images. And here's the thing. If I could snap my fingers and change that, I wish those images didn't exist. I wish they weren't true images. Because here's the thing. is They're not, they're not made up. It was really that bad. I wish no one had to live them or see them. But ever since the fall, men have been doing this. Powerful men have gotten power, however they've gotten it. Dishonestly or honestly, it does not matter. Slavery has been a thing. We're not that far into the Bible in the book of Exodus, and we've already seen 400 years worth of just Israelite slavery, much less anything else that we have seen in Scripture. So slavery is not a new idea. We've seen this throughout history, and it is still going on to this day, and it is far too common in the world, in America. Now, it may not look the same way it used to, but there's still much slavery going on. In the 6th through the ninth centuries, the countries of Eastern Europe were vastly populated. Russian people would need stuff from Africa. Where would they go? They would travel down through many of these eastern com- countries. What they realize on the way is, we can pick up a few of these guys, steal them, take them down there, trade them for our stuff. These nations were known as the Slavic nations. I feel like you might be knowing, know where I'm going with this. If you trace the etymology of the word slave back far enough, that's basically where it came from. Is Slavic people were enslaved so much during these centuries by these Russian people going, trading them for goods or trading goods for people, whichever way it went, that the Slavic name became slave in our language. Then, you fast forward a few years, I do find it ironic that the Christians are who put an end to that. In that area of the world, they were like, no, 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 you can't do that. And then Christians were also the ones making excuses for it in America. But we'll get to that here in just a moment. They were using some of these very verses today. But most of the images that you were probably thinking of were not Slavic people. Were not European people. Because let's be honest, most of those look like most of us. You were thinking of American traditional chattel slavery in the 16, 17, 1800s. Now, I'm not going to belabor the point here, 
But there is no redeeming that time. There is no redeeming that practice. There is no redeeming, well, it wasn't that bad. No, 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 it was. It was that bad. It, along with abortion, to me, in my opinion, this is not thus saith the Lord, is the blight of our nation. It is the darkest things that we have done or are still doing in our nation. And the fact that it was tolerated in any way, shape, or form is beyond reprehensible in all ways. There's no way to be a Christian and not agree with that. However, I I hesitate to even use that word because it sounds like, but if the Christian men who were making excuses using these verses to enslave people would just kept reading, it's not that far to get to verse 16. Just keep reading. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be what? Put to death. This verse itself should have ended any idea that slavery was okay in the traditional sense that we picture now. It should have ended any idea that race should play a part in it or that countries should go to other countries and steal human beings back to their country to go do the work for them. Any suggestion that any race is better than the other one, any suggestion that any sort of traditional American steal a man and make him work for you for free for the rest of his life, slavery is wrong. It should have ended any argument that it was right or wrong right there. Notice this was not just frowned upon. It was not suggested. It was punishable by death. Like, kill them. Get rid of them. If you see them doing this, they don't get to live anymore. That's the command we see here. And not just the actual kidnapper, right? Yes, the person that stole that man, put him to death. Get rid of that dude. But the dude that thought it was okay to buy the guy from him or to to take him for free or however all of that worked, the guy that has the possession of that man, put him to death too. God takes this very seriously. And that's why I want to make sure we get that picture out of our heads because that's not what God is talking about here this is not what we are seeing take place here in scripture and the proof of that besides of everything else I'm going to say after that is that verse right there that verse you cannot steal a man and keep him as a possession or sell him as a possession now remember one way in which God would make his people distinct was the payment of debt. That is why we started there. Many American slaves were not allowed to read their Bibles at all, or they would rip parts of it out and cut parts. Well, don't don't read that verse. It's not important, right? They just tell them to ignore it. And many of them, these verses may, may, may or may not have been taken out, but some verses that were definitely left in are 1 Corinthians 7, 20, and 21. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant? Read that as slave. Same word and same idea. When called, do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Oh, they'll leave that verse in there for slaves. Man, if, you, if you're a Christian, the Bible tells you to just stay being a slave. The problem is, is that is not what these verses are talking about. That is... Chattel slavery is not what those verses are talking about. Notice it says, if you can gain your freedom. You know how you gained your freedom in chattel American slavery? You ran away hoping not to get caught or you died. 
You don't see that here in Hebrew slavery. That is why Paul is saying, if you can gain your free, gain, earn your freedom, because there was a way out of Hebrew slavery. There was actually a commanded way out in Hebrew slavery. There is actually an additional way out that isn't even listed here in this verse. Is the year of Jubilee happens every 49 years. If you were a slave for 10 minutes and that bad boy hit, you're free. Now, usually, probably slave owners were smarter than that. They probably waited till after that. But that's not even mentioned here. There's a way out, and it is a commanded way out of this slavery. So that's why he's saying if you become a Christian during your payment period of six years, just pay the rest of your debt because you still do owe that even though you've become a Christian. That would be like going to prison. I became a Christian. I won't do it again. They, let, they just let you out of prison. Well, he said he wouldn't do it again, so there we go. He still owes the debt. That's why Paul is saying, look, you gain your freedom the way God has commanded you gain your freedom. So, what if someone could not pay a debt? Debt is as old as time. People have owed things, money, stuff, whatever it is. What if you could not pay a debt? And this is where the biblical idea of slavery changes the way we think of these verses. Because this is where it says, first... If you buy a Hebrew slave, what does that imply if the command is for the Hebrew people? It's in-house. It's kept in-house. Hebrew people were hiring slash owning slash possessing, however you want to say that word. There's no sugarcoating that. It says when you buy a Hebrew slave. But what does that mean? It's Hebrews buying Hebrews. Race doesn't play a factor. And it doesn't even give a command for if you buy a slave that's not a Hebrew. It's specifically in-house here. Now, being in-house is not enough to redeem the whole practice, but you can see the difference between the transatlantic slavery trade and this, right? Clearly, that was not kept in-house. Now, Hebrew people were purchased by other Hebrews. The second factor, and this is one of the more important factors that changes our view of what slavery in this verse means, it was voluntary by the slave, not by the slave owner. What that means is, even in the original language, it's ebed, is how you would, well, that's as close as I'm going to get to how you pronounce it in the original language, and it can be translated as slave, and I'm glad that they did, because it offers today. For us, and it offers having to wrestle with this for years for theologians and years to come for theologians. But it can also mean bondservant. It can also mean servant. It's also used by to describe the prophets of God many times in scriptures. They were servants of God. They were slaves of God. They were ebeds of God. And in other extra biblical writings, it was even used to describe employees. So you just own a business. You hire this guy to pay him. Guess what the word was? Ebed, same word we see here. Many Hebrew people owned little family businesses. This is the way it was in America years ago as well. Walmart even started that way. That's why everyone, the last name Walton, is rich beyond belief nowadays. Started as a family business. Same thing in Hebrew time. You started a business, some went well, some didn't. So when someone owed a large debt but had no means to pay that themselves, into slavery they would sell themselves to pay the debt back. Involuntary was outlawed. We just read verse 16. You owe me. Come on. No, you take him to court. You don't steal him. 
You don't break another command because he's broken a command. You do that in a judicial sense. Exodus 22, 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Exodus 23, 9 says the exact same thing. So you don't just go out and get somebody to work for you, to enslave them. You don't oppress them as outsiders. Malachi 3.5 says that the Lord will be a swift witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, and those who oppress a hired worker in his wages. You pay someone. Just like God wants us to be debt payers, he wants the owner of the business to also pay what is owed to the employee slash slave slash bond servant, whatever words you want to put there. If they have worked for it, you owe them that money. You pay them that money. Oppression was never meant to be in the equation or the, in, in this arrangement. You see that in the eye for an eye commands. You wrong your slaves, you do something about it to make it right. You don't just get to go beat them. You don't get to go abuse them and oppress them. In contrast, it was actually meant to be a form of dignity for the enslaved person to not go to prison, to not have their hand cut off for stealing, or any of those types of punishments, it was, you are paying this back. You owe it, and you are paying it back, even though you don't have the money in your pocket to do so. There is means in place for you, the debtor, to pay back. So it, again, it is meant for them to be able to pay off their debt and not receive a handout. Basically, basically, they became employees of that family business. Now, there is a distinction here, obviously, they, they weren't completely treated as family. They did not have an inheritance right. They didn't end up with part of the farm or part of the business. But other than that, they were basically treated as employees and as families. They worked for room and board at the owner's expense. That was part of the deal. But room, board, an honest wage, food that was paid to them by the master, then absorbed by the master in order to pay the debt. They were allowed Sabbath days because that is commanded for Jewish people. And guess who the slaves were? Jewish people. We went over that a moment ago. They were allowed to go to Jewish festivals. They were allowed to adhere to all of the laws that, it, that went with Jewish people because they were Jewish people. Again, in many cases, eating with the family, spending lots of time with the family, getting to know the children of the family, all of these things. And another distinction that needs to be made between traditional slavery that we think of when we hear that word and this particular form is it was meant to be temporary. Verse 2 lays this out very clearly. The slave was meant to serve six years. Now, there is some distinction. Do they serve six and then they get set free in the seventh, or do they serve the full seven, and that's how that works? Either way, definitely temporary. Okay, we see Jacob working for seven years to get his wife, and then dude tricks him with the wrong lady and that whole fiasco, and then he has to work seven more, right? So he worked the seven. So there's obviously maybe some math errors in how some people read this in some gray areas, but what we definitely see is not forever. It's either six or seven years, and either way, you have to set them free at that point. This is a stark difference between slavery that we think of in America. The only time this would ever become a permanent arrangement was when it was decided by the slave, by the servant to stick around. It was never the slave owner getting to decide that. 
the slave who had served out his six or seven years but loved living with his master and living with his family if he had one could then pledge his love and allegiance to them, stay forever with the same civil arrangement of payment, only now it would just be a paycheck, not absorbed by the master, just a paycheck. Furthermore, if that ever changed or if the owner died and the new owner took over, whatever, it was still negotiable. You could then still purchase your way out by earning a wage and then paying the slave owner back the, the 30 shekels is usually what it was, right? You could buy your way out. So, again, temporary. This was never meant to be oppressive or racially motivated. It could be seen as an act of benevolence on the part of the master, again, not taking him off to prison, not taking him to jail, allowing him to work his way, giving him an alternative payment source, payment form. This arrangement was always a civil one, hence the rules. This is God, again, distincting, making his people distinctive, Just giving them rules to follow. And this one is a little bit to navigate. This is one of the last distinctions we see between, again, American transatlantic slavery and this. One of the most egregious facets of chattel slavery, in my, again, in my opinion, is that they would purposely take a family. I'm just going to point at the Vanderpools here and be like, all right, you're going one place, you're going another place, and you two kids, you go to another place. We don't want you banding back together when you get to the same plantation and fighting a fight. We don't want you on the same side, so we're going to split y'all up. What do we see in the Scripture? If a husband is single, he goes in single. Okay, or, a, well, wouldn't be a husband, would he? If a man is single, he goes in single. But if he is married, who goes with him? His wife, his kids. Now, here's the, where it gets a little tricky, and it sounds almost contradictive. It's not. In chattel slavery, there was never any hope whatsoever of reunification except just by chance you happen to find your loved ones. Here... God specifically tells them to keep them together instead of splitting them up. God calls masters to maintain families. If a male slave has a wife, he can keep her and the kids. And even in the case where he's married during his time with the family, there were options. Now, it does say he has to leave them behind if he's going to leave. The, the catch to this is this is to also protect the dignity of the business owner. Because if I'm a smart woman and I'm a slave for 30 minutes... And I know dude's about to get out tomorrow. Oh, I'm in love. I'm going to marry him, and we're going to go out together. And then the business owner, who has just, again, for whatever reason, incurred a debt that he needs paid back, has just lost an entire six years of work because of the timing. So we, this was to protect them. Now, the options were you could also purchase your family out of slavery using the wages that you own if you were a man. You could also wait it out. She's got four years left, waited out, and y'all all leave together after these four years. Or, again, you could completely voluntarily stick around forever and be that person's slave forever. He had options. Was this system perfect? Carried out? Probably not. Because you, you still had sinners who would break the rules and do whatever they want. This is why the sacrificial system was put in. This is why sin still... God tells you to do stuff. Do you always do it? No. God tells you not to do stuff. Do you never do it? No. So probably there were people breaking these laws, oppressing people, maybe never even found out, whatever. Was this system the traditional way that we look at the idea of slavery? I hope you can clearly see differences. I hope you can see that 
It, it was not just stealing human beings and, and making them work forever, oppressing them, abusing them, killing them, and making their life as bad as you possibly can imagine. This is a system given by God to maintain the dignity of his people. His people, again, remember, this is all in-house. And set them up as distinct from impressors and enslavers. And he constantly reminds them of that. Throughout the rest of Exodus, if you remember to do this, just notice how many times God contrasts his people with the Egyptians. Don't do this like the Egyptians did to you. Don't do this like the Egyptians did to you. This is one of those cases. God is offering freedom here from previous bad decisions, both financial and otherwise, because the other facet of this is some people were involuntarily placed into slavery based on crimes. It's kind of like jail here. It's just they didn't go to a jail. They went to go work. But the same laws applied. Six years, and then you're out. Even no matter what the crime was, because if it was a more heinous crime, you didn't have this option. You were put to death, as you see. Now, I've heard arguments made about this allowance by God. Well, God allowed slavery. God was pro-slavery. God was pro-this. God was not pro what you have heard meant by slavery. But why didn't God just simply make the 11th commandment? So you got 1 through 10. We just went through these. 11th commandment, no slavery. He did. That's all I can tell you. Verse 16 makes it very clear. He made that rule. He says, don't, buy, don't go steal a man and make him your possession. Now, is it in the Big Ten? Was it on the tablets? I don't, it doesn't sound like it. Okay, it wasn't. Number 11, slavery's got to end. No, he, but he did tell us, do not do this. Blatantly, don't steal a human being and make them work for you forever. Don't sell them to someone else. Don't sell them to outsiders. This is our people paying our debts to one another because that is what will make us distinct. God is always in the business of maintaining the dignity of his image bearers, and this also includes the masters who were lawfully owed money. Again, they weren't doing this illegally. This was set on how you do it. You are owed money. This is how they can pay it. Another, another argument I've heard as well, God's forgiving, right? God's got mercy in his heart. Why couldn't God just wipe the ledger books? He could have. One thing that would have happened is the economy would have completely broken down, and guess who would have been slaves again very quickly because they would have had no power to prevent them from becoming slaves again were the Israelites. But more important, this is where we will veer from just having a history lesson. More importantly, the act of wiping away debt with no payment would have completely undermined the idea of a future suffering Messiah who does not simply wipe away your debt. He pays it. You cannot just wipe sin away and act like it never happened. And God's not going to set that precedent up with just wiping debt away. Now, if the slave owner wanted to do it, I'm assuming he probably had that option. Because then he could say, we're square, we're good to go. But God cannot just simply do that and then go, but later, later somebody's going to have to really pay and it's going to be Jesus. This method is how God remains just but can also justify wretched sinners. We see this in Romans chapter 3. It all points us to Jesus, just like every text of the Bible. Jesus does not wipe away a single sin without payment. None. Not one will be ignored 
Not one will be swept under any rug. It will be paid in full by Jesus or by the the debtor. The fact of the matter is, we are all debtors. We are all completely and utterly unable to repay what we owe. We have no way to pay the restitution that we owe to God. And especially considering we're going to owe Him again tomorrow when we sin again. We have no way of paying this. So in an act of infinite mercy, Jesus sells Himself into slavery. Philippians 2 tells us very clearly that He emptied Himself, taking the form of an ebed, a doulos, a slave, a servant. It's all the same word if you track the languages. And this was not because he had a debt to pay. We did. We owed. He paid. 1 Corinthians 6, 20 and 7, 23. Two different verses specifically say, you were bought with a price. Jesus paid for you. We see the beginnings of that very truth here in Exodus 21. We owe. Someone has to pay. The ledgers have to be balanced. Jesus buys us with a price and then stamps us free. Stamped free. Think about this. Stamped free by the one we owed the debt to because he paid the debt to himself. I, re- I really want you to grasp this. That would be a, that would be a master owed, being owed money and saying, you know what, I'll work for six years and you do, do nothing. And then we'll call it square even though you're the one that owes me the money, I'm going to do the work. Now, a master could wipe away the debt and say, you know what, don't worry about it, I love you, cool. That's much different than saying, I'm going to work the six years though. I'm going to sell myself into slavery to pay your debt to someone else. This is what Jesus did. And look back at Exodus 21, verse 5, to see what choice a slave could then make. The slave pl- if the pl- slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Why would a slave make that choice? Why would a slave not go out free And to answer that question, I think we have it on screen. It's Psalm 40. We're going to read all of this as well, and then we're going to look at something in closing. Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. He does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burn offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. 
I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame and say to me, Aha, aha, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O God." Did you catch that? I am poor. I have no way of delivering myself. I have no way to pay this. I am in a miry bog. I am in a pit of destruction. After commiserating his debt and his inability to free himself from his own pit of destruction, his bondage to the world, and his miry bog of his own doing, he keeps saying, I've sinned, I've done this, I've done this. But then, verse 6, but also... God did not delight in his sacrifice and his offerings. God did not require him to get himself out of the mess. But what did God do? He gave him an open ear. Now, most of us probably read that for our entire lives and gone, so he was listening now. Except for in the Hebrew language, that actually means he dug out my ear for me. God made David his slave forever. And what is, David doesn't go, you jerk. Forever? Really? He sings his praises for like 20 more verses. Thank you for giving me this open ear. Thank you for making me your slave forever. This is a direct reference to spoken of in Exodus 21 of pledging allegiance to a master for life. And that's where the psalm changes. The tone of the entire psalm changes after that point. I will tell of the congregation. I will tell them forever, forever and ever. They, they will hear your name. They will hear your greatness. They will hear of your mercy. And they will know who I am talking about because I have an open ear. They will know who I belong to because I have an open ear that you alone alone God have given to me. It's not so I can hear better. It's so I know who I'm owned by, who I was purchased by, who bought me with a price. And he will tell the world that slavery to this master is greater than the freedom being offered anywhere in the world. You see, the funny thing about this is, you know, we talk about, well, did God not know 2021 was going to come? Think about the freedom that's being offered you in 2021. You can do whatever you want at all. And all you have to do is yell louder than the person calling you out for it, and they basically have to tolerate you because you're yelling louder. Anything. Freedom. Funny thing is that sin and Satan offer freedom while they're actually only delivering slavery. And Jesus, on the other hand, offers us slavery, and all it does is lead to true freedom. David was in a place of despair with no way out on his own. He tells us, I, I can't get out of this. I can't do it. I don't know how. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. This is the same place we find ourselves. We're all under a debt of sin we cannot pay. Half of the time we don't even want to pay it. We're all in a miry bog, a pit of destruction with no way out. No hope for ever finding our own way out. We are slaves to sin. The Bible is very clear on this point. 
But Jesus, he doesn't wipe away our debt. He doesn't 2021 us and pat us on the back and say, it's all right. Don't worry about it. I got you. I'll wipe it away like it never happened. I'll act like you don't owe anything. No, no, no. He will tell you, no, you owe. You owe everything to me. Whether you acknowledge that or not, so whether you're a believer in this room or a non-believer, a believer in the world or a non-believer, you owe Christ everything. But he looks at some and he says, I'm going to step into your shackles. I'm going to step into your debt, into your bog, into your servitude. I will become a slave myself. He pays our debt. He buys our freedom. He buys it with a price, and that price was his very life. And then he offers us slavery. He offers us for him to be our loving, joyful, perfect master. Not slavery to the world and to sin. Not slavery to the things that we want or that we covet or that we lie to get or that we steal or that we commit adultery for. All of these commands that we've just gone over for weeks. He offers us slavery to him. And I pray for myself And for all of you, that in light of this, that we may be people that look at the freedom that the world offers, and instead of going out, we say, I love my master. I will not go out free. I will be his forever. Let's pray.